Welcome to Crossing Over, a conversation where we look and listen with curiosity for God's presence in the stories of sacred scripture and in our own lives. I'm Sarah Nichols. And I'm Daniel Lucas. Sure, sure. So we're just, we're on. It's fine. Everything's fine. Boom. Boom. We're back. Hello. Been a while. It's been too long. Yeah. How you doing? I'm good. How's your summer been? It was a bit crazy, as you know. Yeah. How about you? A little bit of the same. Yep. It's crazy and warm and, you know, all that. Yeah. All that good stuff. Maybe at some point while we have these conversations, we'll talk about our various craziestness. But I was just thinking we should just dive in because it's been too long. It has been too long, but let's just acknowledge that. <laughs> right. Cause... And it's hot today. It is. The, I don't even know what to do. I, yeah. the, the, the late 90s end time whose name we shall not speak, but you know nobody wants to be left out. Yes. Um, I can't tell you how many times in the last month I've been like, but what if they're right? <laughs> But I digress. Yeah. But it is hot here in Minneapolis today. So. Yeah. And we're not just saying that. Like, it's 100 degrees and a lot of humidity. Tropical humidity. Yes. It's fun times here. So. Yeah. Um, I have a friend who says, we're not in an age of change, but in a change of the ages. Mm-hmm. And I think that's borrowed heavily from Phyllis Tickle and a couple other folks. Mm-hmm. But it does seem like things are changing at like a source code DNA sort mm-hmm. of level really yeah. but here we are looking at a couple thousand year old story about humans and hoping to find why well, hoping to find truths that sort of transcend all humans experience right so so what are we going to do we're going to do Ruth Ruth root root friend uh yes. not Psalm 119 right <sighs> We said we were going to do it, and then summer hit, and so here we are. Yeah. Uh, but okay, so we're going to do Ruth. Um, do you want to? I mean, what do you come? What do you? Why don't you get us on? Sure. Okay. Well, um, <laughs> I forgot how to do this. I know. Okay. I we'll, know. We're I fine. know. We'll talk figure no more. it out. Okay. Um, well, I thought maybe a little bit of an introduction is always good. Um, when we're starting like a whole book or whatever. Okay. We're going to just acknowledge the fact that maybe you hear this, maybe it's just us, but there is someone mowing the lawn in the background. They're threshing the fields fields. so they can find their Boaz. (laughs) Oh, so apologize. Apologies for that. Um, But okay. So the first thing that I thought is talking about where it falls in the Bible. Mm. um, We were chatting about this before we started recording, just how um, the order of books are different. So this happens to fall, so in if you find yourself the Christian persuasion, um, in both Protestant, Catholic, and even in the Septuagint, it lands in the same spot, and they've placed it kind of within the narrative st- story between Judges and Samuel, um, because that's, to the best of our knowledge, that, that's when it would fit in the timeline. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that from verse 1, now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled. So I love the Hebrew there when mm-hmm. the judges judged. When the judges judged, right? Yes. It's just what do you do? You do what you are. Yeah, judges judge. Yeah, rulers rule. Um, 
But in the Hebrew scripture, it's not there. It's, I mean, it's in the Hebrew scriptures. <laughs> it's just not in that spot because uh, they divide their um, their books differently. So they have the they have the Torah, which is the first five books that we have, mm-hmm. and then they have the prophets, which um, are the historical prophets that you think of, but also like Samuel and Kings are in that, um, and Judges, some things that you might not think of as prophets, um, and then so those are all in one chunk in an order and then they have what's called the writings which is everything else so psalms proverbs songs song of psalms so ruth is in the writings, and ruth is in the writings and she falls between i, I thought this was interesting song <coughs> of solomon or song of songs and um lamentations oh that's that was interesting so um so yeah any thoughts on why it's in a different spot well it's it seems like the the shift at least in how the how uh from the septuagint on mm-hmm. um it, it's like um it's it's uh, chronological yeah right so joshua judges ruth that would be how the order in, in like a, a christian bible or a, yep. right or but the septuagint as well and so i suppose if i'm thinking about it you know the septuagint is being written for gentiles for non um jewish interest in the Jewish text. So it's sort of a, a gateway in. And so you tell, they're telling the story chronologically. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, I, I just instantly think of the, the, um, the Narnia, which order do you read the Narnia books in, right? Do you start with the line, the witch in the wardrobe, or do you start with, uh, the magician's, magician's nephew? Part? I literally almost said the same okay. thing. <laughs> so which order do you watch the star Wars movies? In, right. I mean, there's just right. h- how you tell the story has to do with who you're telling the story to. Right. And, you know, especially when now I slip a little bit into this, like the Gospels, um, not just who you're telling the story to, but what you're trying to tell in how you tell the story, because there are, the storyteller has a has an end in mind. Yeah. Yep. And so, anyhow. And maybe that's a good segue to why I think it's in a different spot. Yeah. Um. I mean, I, just as pure speculation, right? But um, I think this this is like a side quest. It's a side story. It's um, it's not essential, possibly to. Ooh. Oh, I don't know if I want to use that word. I don't know. I don't want. I don't know if I like that. But it's it's not a part of like the major narrative. It's a smaller story within it, and it seems like the Jonah story, the um, Ruth story, those are in the writings. And so maybe there was kind of a separation between... Jonah's in the writings? Yeah. No. Right? No. Jonah's Sorry. Yeah. So, no, I was thinking of Job. Oh, yeah, Job. Job sure, being sure. in the writings. Yeah, so yeah. some of these, like, side stories that, like, concern the bigger picture, but... Sure. Um, let's pretend I didn't say the word essential, because <laughs> stories are here for a reason. Yeah. Um, but... They're not a part of like the the big story hmm. in the same way as like the judges are telling the story of the whole people, and this is telling the story of like a more a smaller, more individualized group. Um, I don't know. It's a possibility. Well, I suppose. Well, no, I'll just say what I think. Yeah, uh, I think it's. I think actually, what's happening in Ruth is immensely critical because. Um, okay, go ahead. No, no. I, 
No, I agree with you. Okay. Yeah. So like we've got not just the David prequel. Yep. But we've got the we've got Lot's family being right brought back mm-hmm. into the story. And yep. so part of and we were even talking about this yesterday with you know like we have this way in which we're seeing the stories bigger. The great concern of the sacred scripture is all people everywhere. Yeah. And so what happens here is we have healing of a a family wound that goes all the way back to Abram and Sarai. It goes back to Ur. It goes back Mm -hmm. to who are the Hebrews, who are the the ones who cross over. Yeah. So, but I think, uh, yeah. So I would, that'd be my only nuance to, you know, sort of how it fits in. Yeah. It seems... um Maybe that's a good segue to talk about when it was pro- probably written. Sure. Um, because we know from clues within the text that at a minimum it was written after the time of Judges, because otherwise you don't say in the days of the Judges. Judges, Judges. Um, and after David's rule and reign, because we find out about him. Sure, otherwise you wouldn't include that information. Right, Or it's yeah. just appended you, to it. Right. It, it could be an appendage, but there would almost be... Well, I wouldn't say there'd be no reason telling this story, even if it didn't involve David, because it's a really great story, even if it doesn't lead to the king, um, you know, the great king of Israel. But the reason it's here is because it does. Or like, that's the reason why people of the time would be interested in it. Yeah. Um, But most modern scholars believe it was written in the post-exilic period, probably around 500 B.C., um, and the reason for that is even just in the language structure and the style, um, that people who are really good at Hebrew can tell, you know, the time frames things were written similar to how you can tell a book was written in a certain time in yep. English because the language changes and the style of writing shifts right. over the years. So you can tell the difference between something that was written in, after 2000 and something that was written in 1950 even, um, there's a different style to C.S. Lewis's writing yeah. and narrative than if you read a more modern uh, fantasy author like Brandon Sanderson or something like that. Like it's it it doesn't feel the same, even though there are nods to the same types of things. Um, and so, there's good reason to believe it was written after that time. Sure. And Ezra and Nehemiah made like a declaration that you could not marry anyone outside of Israel, um, and we're very stern about that. And right. a lot of people think this story was written down in the form that we have it today. Now, yeah. it might have been told in different ways, but it was written down during that time frame as an express criticism to Ezra and Nehemiah to, to push back on that and right. say, eh, this may not always be the case that we shouldn't marry outsiders. So. And what a beautiful thing to notice that scripture is arguing or conflicting or, right? It's like, hold on a second. There's these tensions, right? You get the, I mean, depending on the priestly tradition and the prophetic tradition that are sort of at odds. The priests are saying, bring your temple worship. And the prophets are saying, I don't desire sacrifice. God's not hungry. Yeah. Right? This This is something else. And I, especially in the time we're living in, it seems really important to recognize the tension, but that, that there are tensions between these realities and it's not black and white. It's not cut and dry. It's not this way or that way. It's always some sort of negotiation between the ultimate goal, which is 
um, well, how I would say it is, you know, becoming more Christ-like or becoming more loved or or returning in how we exist to understanding that we are we are image bearers, and that's the goal. Yeah, not to click through twenty boxes and be like, I've accomplished all of the things. Right. So I love that that right, like you have that you've set it up that way, where Ruth is in conversation or in argument or conflict or disagreement with Ezra and Nehemiah. Right. Just like we have Deuteronomy saying, "Hey, listen, you know the." Um, the eunuchs will not be allowed within the temple. And then you have Isaiah saying, hey, listen, all, all will be welcome in. Right. All of those who are faithful to me, who keep my way, will be welcomed in and made room right. for. It's like, oh, this. <clears throat> right. Yeah. Yeah. And there, I mean, there are some clues in this story in the way it's told um, that lead us to believe that, the, I mean, this was written after the fact. Names are changed. Um, we'll get to that in a minute because <laughs> there's no way Naomi actually names her sons what they're named in this book. I mean, what do you mean? No way. Well, we'll get to it okay. in a minute. All right. All right. All right. <laughs> Let's go. I mean, it's <laughs> <laughs> Look at that. We got our there own little conflict a, here. <laughs> a lot of side eye, I think, if she actually named her kids this. Okay. Um, so let's start. All right. Shall we? Yeah. Um. Should we just like you, read the first four verses? Yeah, are you reading from Alter? I was. Do you want no, no, one you great, prefer? Yeah, nope. Okay. Um, this is from Robert Alter's translation. Um, and it happened in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land, and a man went from Bethlehem to sojourn in the plains of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And the man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malan and Kilion. Ephratites from Bethlehem of Judah. And they came to the plains of Moab, and they were there. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she, together with her two sons, was left. And they took for themselves Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. And they dwelled there some ten years. And the two of them, Malan and Kilian, died as well, and the woman was left of her ch- two children and of her husband. That was actually through verse 5. But So, and it happened in the days of the judges, when the judges judged that there was a famine in the land. What is odd about that? I, I mean, here's my, my first thing is that I want to I recall to mind what, what it was like during the time of the judges. Yep. Because what what, we've, what we have happening during the the story of the judges is we have a cycle of um, of repentance and um, and a returning back to God, um, and then a slow drift over time into various forms of idolatry. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So so right. So what what we this is a little bit in the Wild West. This is pre uh, pre kinging right in in the land and so we just have a lot of things that are uncertain or changing constantly so i, I mean that's the first thing i want i i want to do when i when yeah. i situate this is to just recognize that this is not an idyllic time things are not easy and it's there's a, right there if you just go read the book of judges the people yeah. did what was right in their own eyes, keeps coming up. And you have these 
bombastic characters that yeah. make their way in that as children we love, right? We think of Samson, we're like Samson, the jawbone, you yeah, know. The, Gideon and the fleece. Right, Ehud and the sword that gets covered in over the, you know. And uh, Deborah, the female judge. Deborah, yeah. And, and But then as you grow up a little, well, as I've grown up, they become more complex stories because I don't know how to situate the the violence with the way of Christ. Yeah. Yeah. And that's just the, again, the problem of scripture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, um, things are very tribal mm. at this point. Um, they aren't, they aren't coming together as a collective of people, except when there's battles and you're just, you're helping your brother out. Right. Cause they do still see the other tribes as brothers and things like that. So, if they are threatened in some kind of way, they'll come together, but otherwise they're just existing um, really separately hmm. too. Um, yeah. Well, what did you, what did you think was, you had an oddity? I do. Um, because they're in the promised land, hmm. the land flowing of milk and honey. So, what is what has gone wrong that there was a famine here? <coughs> and I don't mean okay that could be taken one way that like oh if the people were doing things right there would be no famine. Um, but I think I think it's pointing to something different than just like a physical famine. Although that may well have been like a physical famine that they were running out of food and things like that because there wasn't water or whatever happening in the area at that time. But there's also the question of, well, is this a spiritual famine? Hmm. Because they're in the promised land. And they're coming from Bethlehem, which means the house of bread or the house of food, because bread is the same word for food. Um, And so, um, I don't know. There's just the question that settles with me is like, well, what does it mean that there's a famine in the promised land. Hmm. And is the famine a consequence of action? Or is the famine just part of the natural cycle of of the land? And then maybe even stepping into, you know, there's all these sort of Sabbath practices that never actually get enacted, including like the deer of the Jubilee. Mm-hmm. But, you know, does letting the the land rest um, every seventh year, does that stave off famine, you know, where it's like, oh, it's not just a, it's not just a spiritual request invitation. It's a, it's a, it's a physical spiritual because the things are connected. Right. But I think, I think five years ago, I would have said there's a famine in the land because the people did what was right in their own eyes. Sure. And today I'm less inclined to quickly move to that, to tie the two things together. Um, But I do think there are ways in which how we live impacts the way things are around us. Because usually there's enough. It's just, it's it's when we live selfishly that there's not enough to go around. Like right now, right, like the, the thing I keep hearing is there's enough food in the world to feed everybody. There's enough. There is enough. The problem are the various systems that are in place that impose i mean and you can see it actually here right you go to a grocery store you're not a grocery store you go to a bakery you go to whatever and they throw away day olds yeah and they throw away day olds because in some ways 
um, well, I've, I know this. Uh, it's a way to cut loss because if their employees know, they think if their employees know that whatever is left over they can take, they'll just make extra yeah. and, and quote unquote steal it. But also there are some local reg- regulations depending on where you live um, that say you can't give, you have to throw the things away. Yeah. Anyways, <clears throat> I don't know. Um, I, yes, to like the way we manage what we've been given can lead to famine. And so I don't want that to come Hmm. across as like, a um, because you didn't follow the rules, God is punishing you with a famine type thing. But um, there's a really great example of this. If you've ever gone to like Haiti or the Dominican Republic. Sure. um, When you actually fly over, um, there is a like, you can actually look this up on Google Earth. Um, there's a line of demarcation in the middle of the island yeah. where Haiti ends and Dominican Republic begins. And it's green as green can be on the Dominican resi- side um, because they have managed their resources well. Yeah. And Haiti, um, a while back, not that long ago, like they just depleted their ecosystem. Like they... In the, in order to get more yep. and to make more money and make it quick, you know, they just they demolished their land, right. and it can't recover right. because they didn't they did not manage it well, right. and now they have nothing right. because things aren't growing yep. because you have to leave certain things growing. I mean, I'm not a farmer; I don't know how yep. to do this, but like, you can't just clear cut everything and expect it to grow back because now there's the system needs trees and bushes and things and you can't just demolish it all and expect it to thrive and so there is a self-imposed famine of sorts in Haiti and this is not the people didn't do this the leadership did it and but the people are the ones that are hurting from the famine right the land something happened in the the land. land yeah right so um yeah. <clears throat> but I think the thing that settles with me is that this is a place where there's not supposed to be famine because this is the promised land. Right. So at least on a, at least mm. thinking on a spiritual level, there should not be famine in the land. Well, right. Okay, now I'm tracking. Yeah, now I'm I'm I, I think I've caught up to you. Okay. Because there can be hard years, but they don't need to be famines. Right. I mean, right cuz fa- Famine is both land, but also we really only experience famine in how it translates to supporting human life. Yeah. Right. Otherwise, it's not a big it's not a big deal. It's not a problem to have a famine if you've got people taking care of each other. Right. And um, hmm. so there's two other places that we've come across in scripture so far where there's famines. Egypt, Egypt, or sorry, yeah. the, so the end of Genesis where mm-hmm. Joseph finds himself yeah. there, and then... Isn't Abram goes down to Egypt at one point because oh, there's yes, there's another famine. famine, Genesis. And I'm thinking of Amos, I think it's 8-4, mm-hmm. where there was a famine for the word of the Lord. Yeah. So we've got it's even spiritual within famine. the yeah. prophetic right, voice saying, like, listen, like... When we're talking about this, we're talking about this. Yeah. And the and Amos's whole thing is the wealthy forgetting the poor. Right. I mean, 
right? Because even you see it, we saw it during COVID. The wealth, the, the, those with much did fine, while those with little struggled. Yeah. And so the, the wealth enables us to sort of sail the seas of hard times with greater ease and a greater protection. Um, and the lack of resources means that you're at the mercy of insert. Yeah, which we'll come back to eventually. Okay. In this, yeah, right. In this story. Um, should we move forward a little bit? Yeah. Okay, so um, let's see. We talked about... Oh, so the choice to go to Moab. Yeah. Um, there's a handful of things going on there, I think. Okay, because Moab is... Well, it's a, it's several things. <laughs> I don't know. What do you want? What do what, you think? Go. No, yeah. I mean... Well, they don't help want... the people on their way out of Egypt. Yes. And that becomes deeply problematic right. in, in Deuteronomy and... And numbers. And numbers, yeah. Yeah. Right. So this becomes... The king of Moab is the one who uh, hires Balaam to curse Israel. Right. Um, And it doesn't go in the favor of the king of Moab. Is it Abimelech? No, that's in Genesis. That's Abram and Isaac with the wealth. And it's kind of like this conglomeration. It's like the Moabites and the... um, uh, The Midianites and the uh, Amalekites. They're all kind of like... They're all in this... Right. End of the wilderness journey story, um, but they're standing in the way. And uh, Moab is uh, k- kind of roughly in modern day Jordan. So it's just across the Jordan River from Israel. It's right. This was the last stop yeah. on the wilderness journey before they entered into the promised land was Moab. Um, going back even farther, you had mentioned this earlier, they are the descendants of Lot through his daughters and the incest that happened. So, in a in a way, they are very distant cousins of the Israelites because they yeah. come from the same family as Abram, as Abram's nephew. Right. So there's there is a relation there. Um, it's very distant, but they're looked down on by the Israelites morally because they came from incest, and you know, apparently that means they're all incestuous and terrible people. Yeah. Uh, in in biblical Hebrew, like that's the viewpoint that the people at the time had for them. I'm not saying that that's actually true, um, but they are viewed as this like immoral and horrible people. They are enemies, um, both morally, but also um, from the past. There's stories within the judges where they have fought the Moabites, um, and they had this whole like showdown with the Moabites before they entered into the Promised Land. Right. Um, so there's, yeah, I mean, it's, there are multiple layers of things going on with the Moabites specifically. Um, there's also, there's a really bad story that happens in numbers 25. Um, do you know which one I'm talking about? Mm. So some of the, uh, Israelite men, uh, Go whoring with the Moabite women, uh, as it reads in my in Fox's translation, um, and it leads to the death of like twenty four thousand Israelites in a plague that God puts on them because of the misbehavior. Because when they marry the Moabite women, they start worshiping the local gods. Yep. Um, and there's this whole spearing through mm. a man and a woman that oh, happens yes, with yes. Pishon. I think it's Pishon or 
Panas. It's it's Phineas. It's Phineas. Paul Paul brings him up later. Yeah, it's Aaron's son. Paul Paul Um, Paul wants thinks of himself in some ways, or thought of himself in some ways as that. Um, A a moral sort of. Yeah. He was a crusader. But but yeah, like the bad people in this story were the Moabite women. So we have like there's so many layers of things that are building. Well, in this story, it's the women who are the heroes. Yes, but I. I was reading um, the way this story is set up. It in these first few verses, you're like, "This is going to be a bad story. Mm. Like some bad things are about to go down." Just because of the language, and we should get into the names a little bit because that'll help us with that. But um, but the Moabite thing, like as far as a, a story pattern, you're seeing these references to Moabite women. Last time we've had like a main reference to Moabite women, it ended very poorly. Twenty four thousand people died. They led the men astray. Like this can't end well, right? right? This, the setup of this story is telling us this this is not going to end well. Yeah. Um, and um, then I also thought this is the choice to go to Moab is also reversing the journey into the promised land. Because this was the last stop. And so there's almost this, like, are you turning your back on the promised land, on the promise of God, and returning to the ways of the past, or um, even mm. eventually, possibly, um, Egypt? Because we're told they journey to Moab. They're, it doesn't sound like they're intending to stop there originally. So, that's interesting. Okay. I know we want to get to the names, but yep. I think I think I want to pull a few things out that I think are really important that I, that you're saying. Um, first thing is to recognize the the conflict that exists about um, about Moabites in the Israel context, and that that this is subversive. First and foremost, in that we have a Moabite woman as sort of the hero or the yeah. protagonist or the one who's moving the story on and, and faithfully forward and ultimately in such a way where she becomes in the lineage of David and then, you know, in the lineage yeah. of Christ. So we've got that sort of whole thing going on. We have a question here about famine. <clears throat> where does famine come from? Like, why are things bad? And are things bad because sometimes things just go bad? Or are things bad because there's bad action that has led to, to you know, to a famine. But then we also have this question now that kind of combines these two things. The famine, which is just a difficult thing, leads this family to leave the promised land, the the land flowing with milk and honey, the the house of bread, right? To leave the land and to go to Moab. And and is this a reverse journey? Yeah. (laughs) Is this, does the, is there, is there only a famine in Israel? Right. Is the famine in Moab? Like so now it's like, oh that that's interesting because if it's geographical, then we move into the Haiti DR conversation where it's like, okay, it's bad act it's like physical bad action that leads to a physical bad thing that's telling us about our spiritual brokenness. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So but then also you know, it wasn't um the invitation, um, Egypt was a safe haven for the families in Genesis during famine. And for a time. And then we have Jesus making his own journey out of the promised land. And so that, to me, I'm seeing that that even the context of the... And we don't know actually when in Judges this happens, right? It's it's 
if you want to situate it, you situate it somewhere between the beginning and the end of Judges. Yeah. <clears throat> so what we have are all of these questions that were raised right away about who's in, who's out, um, why do bad things happen, um, when bad things happen, what are good choices, what are bad choices, right? And and we're dropping right into this. We're dropping right into this cyclone of all of these varying. Um, considerations that we're all living in today when mm-hmm. things get bad do you leave when things go bad do you double down why do things go bad is the current administration of various things responsible for the state of things or is it the previous like <clears throat> anyhow i just I, I appreciate all of those things that are what we're stepping into yeah yeah names names okay all right <laughs> Why are you looking at me? I don't know. Do you want to do this or do you want me to start? No, go for it. Let's do it. Okay. So Elimelech means my God is king or God is king. Um, nice, sturdy Jewish name <laughs> or Hebrew f- name at the time. A very powerful name. A very powerful name. I was reading, um, uh, I think Rashi was talking about how um, the the. The the rabbi the rabbinic commentators see him based on his name, based on where he lived in Bethlehem, because he's in Ephratite. Yep. Um, that that means he's a person of significance. Mm-hmm. Um, and he has a strong name. I mean, I would strong name. Limelech is a strong name. Yeah. And then we have Naomi, whose name means my delight. Um, the root of her name comes from beauty or pleasant pleasantness. So and we have these like. I mean, what a couple, right? Power right. couple. We have this beautiful woman mm. who is pleasant to be around, and my God is king um, as her husband. Like, it just they sound like a power couple. And they live in the house of bread. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so then they have two children, and they name them Sickness and Destruction. <laughs> <laughs> this is what I was hinting at. That So, Mela, Ma, Malan, or Malan means sickness. It's from a root meaning disease, sickness, or grievous. Um, and Hilion means failing or destruction. So, when I said she likely did not name her children these names, you get it now. <laughs> I, I, I'm not still sure I, I, I agree with that, but... Why? Say more. Um... Uh, names if if well okay so uh, i want to go i want to go an absolute route one of two ways right i want to go um elimelech and and naomi are their names and they had children and they named them mechlan and chilean or no these are names does that make sense yes like i want to i want to use this and you don't have to but i so if if Elimelech's parents named him Elimelech. Then I want to. I want to go. Well, they named their children Chilean or wasting and and if that's where you're living, if that's when you're living, if that's how you're living, I mean, the we the kids are named and things are placed on them, and so I don't know. I does that make sense? Yeah. I just uh, yeah, but it is an odd. But I think your point being. What would have to be true for those to be chosen names would be quite extreme, and it seems like not the kind of thing 
a loving parent would put on their child. Right. Right? That's what yeah. I think you're ultimately getting at. Yeah. yeah. So I'm wondering if it's an after the fact because of what happens to them that they are named thus in by the by the author of the story, the person who's actually writing it down. Sure. That. And because they're, they meet an untimely demise. Yes. Um, they could be just, these are, they're being named for what's about to happen to them. It's a foreshadowing. Right. Yeah. And then, which is, it's, the dichotomy is great too, because then we're told that they're um, ephrotites, which means to be fruitful. Right. So we have the, yeah. And um, so, I like to do this, especially with this passage in Ruth, is to read it the way that it might have been heard to original Hebrew mm. le- listeners. Yeah. Um, so the man's name was God is King, and his wife was beautiful and pleasant. And the names of his sons were sickness and destruction, fruitful ones, from the house of bread, praise God. And they came to the land of his father. Um, so what I did there, so Bethlehem is a house of bread, Judah means to praise God, and Moab mm means of his father or from his father so there's a way of is moab actually a location sure or is it is he going to the land of his father or the land of so who is who is elimelech's father who who does he uh not his like actual father but like who fathers you type thing um there's just a lot of play with the words yeah that it can be both a physical place but it could mean something more spiritual as well um Hmm. but yeah yep i mean right that hits just a little different it does yeah which is why i like to do it yep yeah um and and then we have elimelech dying and the sons, this is what I found was really interesting. The sons take for themselves Moabite wives. What does that sound like? Well, it sounds like a lot of things, but it sounds like the garden. It sounds like yes. it sounds like the people did what was right in their own eyes. Right. It's and again now we're dropping into one of those deep conversations about when when is it right to take something or to initiate something. And when do you wait to receive? Right. <laughs> and the answer, of course, is an endless mystery. Yeah. Of I don't know. Yeah. You, you know, you work that out in in inside you with the spirit of God and with community that you trust. Yeah. So, like what what Daniel's referring to is that this take for yourselves. The language isn't exactly the same, but that's what Eve does in the garden. She takes for herself the fruit of the tree. She's not supposed to. She makes the decision for herself to take the fruit. Um, the the people throughout the book of Judges are doing what is right in their own eyes. So they're not taking, per se. The word take is not used. But they're, they're making the choices for themselves. They're not involving God in the decision. They're not involving their community. They're just, they're doing this on their own is the... Um, the feel that you get from it. Um, there's a, one other person who, um, I mean, maybe there's more, but <laughs> one that I'm thinking of who took for themselves something. Do you know what I'm talking about? I don't. Genesis 13. Oh, and Lot. So, when Lot and Abram sure. separate, Lot looks for himself and decides what is good. And he takes for himself the land 
that is Sodom and Gomorrah, which we know ends up not being great, um, and eventually leads to mm-hmm. the Moabites being created through the incest with his daughters. So there, there's even this little hint of connection to when you take from your, for yourself, you end up with the Moabites, people born of incest. Hmm. But I think time and time again, we see this. When you take for yourself, things don't end well. Right. Hmm. Interesting. I've got a note here. So I'm using <clears throat> the JPS commentary on Ruth. And it says, um, <laughs> structurally, a marriage marriage with a Moabite woman stands at the center of the prologue. Right? This is... Moabite status may also be the focal point of the dilemma that must be faced when Ruth the Moabite comes to Judah. So, right, that this is, apart from all the things we've, we're talking about, we're going back to that thing you mentioned with Ezra and Nehemiah and other places where a marriage with a Moabite is problematic. Yeah. Uh, that's a gentle way to say it. <clears throat> so it's, but then he go, the commentator goes on and says, it, but it's not uncommon in, in um, the Bible for Israelites who lived outside the land to marry local women. Joseph marries uh, uh, Asenath, the Egyptian. Moses marries Zipporah, the Midianite. And so, like, right, you're, you're like, all right, so there's some precedence here, but then there's this foreboding line that ends with, neither, however, returns to the land of Canaan with his foreign wife. Oh, interesting. Right, so upon all of sort of the layers here is this sort of ominous, this isn't going to go well for them. Right. If, if history holds, right. This won't go well. Yeah. And I, I think the whole, I think just the whole setup here, it's like, you have to put yourself in the shoes of being like the early listeners to this, um, this book and having it read to you and you don't know how the story ends. So you don't know that things work out in the end. You right. don't know that this leads to the future King of Israel. Like you're just listening to a story and literally everything in these first couple verses is pointing towards things are about to go horribly wrong. Right. Like this will not end well. Um, it's like if you think about the troop of the story or whatever, that like the, this, we're setting this up. And if you know the way these things work and the way these phrases work and what happens when you mix with these women and what happens when you leave the promised land and what happens when there's famine and what happens when... Uh, you take for yourself, everything is point, And then you add on to the names that these kids are named sickness and destruction. And you're just like, oh, okay, things are about to go wrong. This is going to be some kind of moral story that shows us how we shouldn't marry Moabite women and we shouldn't leave the promised land. And like bad things happen when we do this and this and that. And as we know, that's not at all what this story does. But I think that's one of the fun, the fun ways that really good authors can mess with us because they give us all the hints that this is going to go in this direction mm-hmm. and then they twist it. Because you're expecting one thing and something totally different comes out of it. Because right. then you're caught off guard and it can sink in better. Similar to how like, I think of when uh, Nathan confronts David and yeah. gives, him, gives him this story where he knows David's going to agree with him and be like, I see the injustice in this. And then it's like, uh, you are this, this is you.
But had he just come straight to David and told him it, he might not have gotten the point. So um, good authors do this well. And I think that's what we're seeing in Ruth is this, this setup that tells us hmm. the exact opposite. We, we should be expecting the exact opposite of what we end up getting. Okay, so Elimelech, God is king, Naomi, mm-hmm. pleasantness, Melion, Chilion, sickness, wasting. Where were we? Were we with name? Were we doing names? Yeah, we. I think we finished the names. We finished the names. Yeah. Okay. The, the sickness and destruction who are men of fruitfulness from the house of bread, hmm. going to Moab and taking for themselves. And who do they take? Oh yeah, they take Orpah and Ruth. What do you have for those names? Or is, am I going too fast? No. Did you want to not do those names yet? Um, I don't have them in my notes. Um, well, I've got... I've do you got, have them? Yeah. I, yep. I, this is fascinating for me. So for me, Orpah had always been Neck. And then with that, f- yeah, of course, yeah. funny... Yeah, Gazelle. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With the, with the fun Orpah, Oprah yeah. story, right? Where Oprah was accidentally named right. Oprah, not Which, Orpah. Is that even true? That I don't true? know. I don't it's a good story. <laughs> you know, a... a, a a child named incorrectly comes to now, like people name their kids Oprah. <clears throat> Anyhow, so you have Orpa, um, and then you have Root. And so uh, Ruth, I've always, Root, Ruth, I've always, you know, read his friendship. Mm-hmm. But um, <clears throat> here's what, again, the, the JPS says. Uh, the etymology of the name which appears in this book is difficult. The inscription, the Moabite Mesha inscription uses the form R-Y-T, sati- satiation. Um in Hebrew, the name may derive from the root R-W-H. Uh, I assume that's, well, uh, overflowing with moisture, as in the watered garden in Isaiah 58. Thus, the two wives' names are linked together by the element of water because the other way you can understand Orpa is the cloud above that passes without bringing rain. So Ruth is the moisture below that brings the desiccated family back to life. Um, while Orpah is the cloud above that passes without bringing rain. So Neck, Gazelle, Beauty marries, you know, one of the... Do we know which one they marry? Or just that they married? I mean, if we do it in kind, it would be Mechelon. Melon marries Orpah and Ruth marries Chilion, but we don't know. It doesn't say specifically. But what we do have is they're sure not not, um, marrying people that are are named like them. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe Orpah, depending on how you want to... How that name gets, you know. Yeah. If we start sort of with all the questions we've been building, what does it mean to find friendship in the land you go to when you're when you're trying to survive leaving famine, right? They they take for themselves and doesn't go well for them. But it sounds like Ruth was a Ruth is a is a good human. Yeah. But then they die. <laughs> but then they die. Well, they thought they they also they dwelled there for ten years and then they died. Which, to me, tells me, mm. okay, well, A, they've been barren for 10 years, both these women. Or, or no, su- no. unsurprisingly, sickness and destruction were unfer- infertile, <laughs> even though they're supposed to be fruitful. Right. Well, what we find out it, by the time we get to the end of the story is that's not on Ruth. Right. But for 10 years, there's no children. After 10 years, like you would think being married for 10 years in this time and place that there are children. And so it shouldn't be an issue. You, you already have offspring from these men to carry on their names and the legacy. Um, but they don't. So either either they've had no children or they have no living children. We aren't given any more detail than that. But we do know right. there, there aren't children because there aren't children that go with them. 
there aren't children, and there's no mention of punishment in right. If if this is like yeah, you're dying because you did wrong. Well, it doesn't say that. <clears throat> you can get there, or yeah. you can think that, or you can infer it, and you can infer it by reading. You know, like we talked about Joseph and uh, Moses, both marry but never get back into the promised land and all that stuff. But it doesn't explicitly say that this is a consequence, as it were, for bad. But it is. I, there's an ir- an irony in this that they leave they leave the place where there's famine in order to survive, and all the men die in their attempt to survive. But Naomi is okay. Well, sort of. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, she's alive. She's alive. It's interesting what we bring into this story too, right? Like. It doesn't say they're being punished or it's a consequence or anything like that. But noticing at least my impulse to assign to it some sort of, well, they did wrong. They're, you know, they did wrong in the eyes of the Lord, therefore they died. And part of my impulse to do this, because I read it, <laughs> there are places where that is what happens. But how when it doesn't show up, what am I, why might I do that? What's my impulse to make sort of a, a judgment? <laughs> Um, over how and where and, and what they were. It, to me, it reveals more room for mercy to work its way in and uh, trust mm-hmm. that um, I don't know everything, I can't know everything. All I can really do here is continue on like Naomi. Yeah. What, right in the face of these questions, you just... Yeah. You get the, the leaf blower out and you... Just kidding. <laughs> Yeah, but I think, I mean, I think in, in a lot of ways that's what the, the author wants us to think, that they've made bad choices and they've left and they're being punished for it. Like, even without directly saying it, I think there's kind of this expectation that the reader's going to think this. And that's what I want them to think at this juncture in the story, because I want them to be surprised by the end. Which I definitely think plays into the whole, if this is like a critique of Ezra and Nehemiah's rules about not marrying that that's exactly the hand you would want to play into that like oh this is a story supporting what Ezra and Nehemiah are telling us that you we shouldn't go and marry these women okay it's about to get flipped okay can we zoom out yeah so what do you do with the what do you do with the reality that scripture isn't uh univocal (laughs) or it's not I don't want to say it's inconsistent right but it it sure it sure behaves my okay so um I love the description of scripture as God breathed, which is Paul, how Paul will do it in Timothy, right? We'll we'll read inspired, but it's really God breathed, which pulls us all the way back to Genesis. And so we have the humans who in Genesis 2 are created. In Genesis 1, they're, they're the image and the likeness of God. They're carrying this into the world. And in Genesis 2, we get like a, a less cosmic, a more earthy version of it. And the humans are this combination of heaven and earth. Mm-hmm. They're, they're the dust or the mud or the dirt. <clears throat> and, well, they're the Adama, right? Then, mm-hmm. But they're the Adama that is animated or is by, by they're God-breathed. And so you have the human as these like really complex creatures that exist between heaven and earth or are are equal parts heaven yeah. and earth. And so when Paul's using that to describe scripture, I'm thinking scripture very very much like humans where it's 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 God and human together. So what I'm sort of wanting to what I'm curious about how you see it is what do you do with the fact that 
it's complicated or conflicted like I'm complicated and conflicted or you are where it's like I don't know some days I'm this some days I'm, some days I'm like yeah that's right Melian Chilion that's what you get you done did marry them them women <laughs> or right like you yeah. you get what you deserve and then there are other days I read it and I'm like man what would it be like to be named that by your parents yeah and what would it be like to have to be dragged away to a land you know like I, and I, it depends on me how I how how I come to it. But how do you like how do you think about this space that um that the whoever's putting this before us, whatever combination of God and man that puts us before us, right? The the, the breath and the the breath and the dirt that that makes up Scripture for us. What do you how do you reconcile or live within the tension that it's not clear? Or it's not consistently clear, or the clarity that it is is that it's not clear, mm-hmm. or that some, sometimes it's this, sometimes it's that. Like, how do you how do you live within that? Okay, it doesn't bother me. Me twenty years ago, it bothered because because I, uh, I grew up in a tradition where like everything had to be like literal, and um, I don't know if anybody actually said it outright, but there was kind of this inherent belief that like you no know, God. Like God was dictating this to people as they wrote it down, which I now, me now, thinks is is ridiculous. Like there's so many different styles. Like if God just did that, it would all just be, there would be no contradictions. There would be no difficult points. Like if maybe there would be still, but like I think, you know, if if I'm God and I'm dictating it, I'm going to do a pretty good job of not contradicting myself and not having things be sketchy and not having this potentially problematic um, view of me in the Old Testament and when yep. I'm going to like throw everything for a wrench. Um, I think this is a part of how um, God does and wants to relate to his people. Something you said about the, you know, inspired, the word is inspired in the sense that it is God breathed. Yep. Well, we are God breathed. So we are inspired. Every one of us, Moabites included. Come on. Because <laughs> every, every human is God breathed. Right. Every human is God breathed. The the Moabite women are God breathed. You took that what I think is a bad translate. I I think you it should always just in Timothy it should be God breathed, right? Because what right. Paul's doing is he's he's talking about Genesis. He's talking about who we are and why we're here. And you just took that word that I think is poor. They're inspired, and you just said, "All right, yeah, humans are inspired." Yeah, oh, I love that. And I. To quote Pete Inns for the twelve hundredth time, like that God lets his people tell his story. Like that and what happens when you let other people tell your story? Oh, they get, they get wrong. details wrong from time to time. <laughs> and they get the point wrong from time to time. Like they I think overwhelmingly the trajectory of the story and the bigger picture of the story gets mm-hmm. told well and right. But that doesn't mean every little detail is told like God's like, yep, that's exactly how I would have told the story. I think sometimes he's like, oh, crap, this is going to cause some issues. That's where discussion and debate and, um, and I, I don't mean like debate and angry debate, but like friendly debate. Um, We've debated today, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and, yep. and that's like, that's a super traditional thing for in the Jewish tradition um, to get in arguments and discussions about scripture and what it means and what it doesn't mean. And they can get really animated at times. And then they're the best friends when they walk out the door because it, everything doesn't hinge on everyone in green. 
Right. Like the fun is actually in the debate. The life is in the debate. Yeah. Right. It's in yeah. the back and forth. And it's the in the learning is in it's the in debate. Attention. I always think of like the guitar, right? Like the idea is if you don't have tension, things pulling on the string, you have no music, you have no sound. Right. And so there, there are things that, that agreement does. Right. And gives and being on the same page. But there are things that only tension can bring. Right. And I think, um, you know, we could look at Ezra and Nehemiah and maybe Ezra and Nehemiah are looking at the story of the Moabite women in Numbers 25. And they're like, look at this. Look at the history of marrying Moabite women or Canaanite women like Jezebel. They're, they're looking at all the ways that it went wrong and sure. they're afraid of all the ways that it can go wrong. And rightly so, because there are a lot of ways that it can go wrong. And they're just like, it's, it's just safer if we just don't do this at all. Right, like just steer clear of it because it's um, hmm. it it ends poorly and see exhibit X Y and Z and then we have someone coming in but but wait there's there's a story that like has been told about the origin of David and David's father that actually points to the opposite that this could be life giving and life changing and could actually lead to the greatest king that Israel's had um, so that. Yes, numbers exist. Numbers 25 exists in this bad story. And yes, the Jezebels of the world exist. But so do the Ruths. And to see what comes from healing and reconciliation between the deep past. Right. What can come forth. The fruit that can come forth from healing. Yeah. From restoration, from reconciliation. And that that's actually the goal, the whole goal of, the whole aim. It's what God's... It's what God seems. What's well, what Scripture seems to be saying? God is doing the whole time, right? The the rec, the um, the renewal of all things, the new heaven and the new earth, the nation streaming, um, that all are welcomed in, right? The people are not just um, they're not just a chosen people. They are, but they're chosen to be priests to the nations, right? For, they're, for a purpose. They're loved. You know, Abram is is a blessing to all of the people of the earth, and it's. While there may be divisions between us, while there may be gaps and wounds that need healing, um, that's not the story. Isn't the wound the the story is the healing wound or the wound that heals or the the healing that comes from us being together? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Toodles. You thought I was going to leave that behind. I didn't think you were. I hoped you were. <laughs> uh, see you next time. Yeah. Ruth, we'll, we'll, we'll do this at least for, I don't know, five, six, seven, yeah. eight more weeks. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. We'll see how long it takes.